That's right, for those who are tuning in online, maybe for the first time, we're in the book of Malachi. Um, you don't spend a lot of time in the Minor Prophets, but it's been a blessing to spend some time in, in this one. So this week we're looking at Malachi 2, verse 17 through to um, 3, verse 12. I know Shabu just pr prayed then, but I might uh, just open in prayer as well. Uh, dear Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the book of Malachi. We thank you for the reminder of your covenant love for your people. Um, Lord, we might be unfaithful, but you certainly never waver in your faithfulness towards us. Um, Lord, I pray you'll be present, um, that you'll bless the words that are said today, that you'll open up our hearts to hear what your spirit has for us. In Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. It's been a bit of a session, so if you need to wriggle or move around or get the blood flowing again, that's absolutely fine. I wonder, having said that, um, if any of you have ever felt weary, um, a lot of you, I imagine, can probably relate to that feeling through lockdown. I think some of the faces above the face mask, kind of your body language emanates. I'm experiencing that right now. Um, weariness is a typical human feeling, isn't it? Now, sometimes it's physical weariness. Uh, the other day, I took my kids swimming and uh, had this burst of enthusiasm to do a quick 50-meter sprint. And I think 10 meters into that sprint, I realized the other 40 meters wasn't, wasn't a great idea. After two years of lockdown, a bit of physical activity can make us feel pretty weary at times. Um, sometimes, though, it's more of a, a mental or a spiritual weariness. We might be dealing with some significant demands of work. We might be dealing with uh, difficult things that can happen in our families. We might be dealing with uh, people's criticisms or, or complaints from people around us or, or dealing with significant stress perhaps in our, in our work environments or elsewhere. And those things too can weary us. Uh, they can burden us. They can make our hearts feel heavy. And at the start of this week's passage, in fact in the very first verse, chapter 2, verse 17, we find out that God himself is wearied. Now, he's an all-powerful creator God, isn't he? So we're not going to be talking about a physical weariness. God doesn't get tired in that sense. There's a, there's a sense of God having this deeply felt burden. He feels burdened and weighed down by the constant grumbling and complaining and accusations and criticisms from his own people, the people that he loves. And there's two main things in this passage that weary God. First, we find that they weary him with their words because they doubt his justice. But then we find out later in chapter 3 as well that they, the people are effectively wearying God by their actions in the way they have turned away from God by withholding their tithes. So they, they doubt God first, and then because of their doubting who God is, they then withhold from him. I wonder if you've ever doubted the justice or the fairness of God. Perhaps it's best identified when we use phrases like, I deserve better than this, or my family deserves better than this, or why don't things ever get better for me? Why don't they fix themselves up? We have our own perceptions of what is right or, or just or fair. And when that seems to, to mismatch with our experience in life, then we can easily question or we can criticize God. And pretty soon, the natural response is that we turn away from him 
rather than towards him. In a way, that's where the nation of Israel were at. They had returned out of exile with expectations that they might therefore return to their former glory, but life on the other side of exile didn't really seem to match up with what their expectations were. In fact, not only was it not living up to the hype, it seemed like uh, the nations around them were prospering when they were not. So they questioned God's justice and they turned away from him rather than towards him. So God responds through Malachi in, in two ways. The first way you can see his response is in the first section from chapter 2, verse 17, through to chapter 3, verse 5, where we, he reminds the people of God's coming judgment in response to their doubting of his justice. The prophet points them towards a time when God's final judgment would come. Then in the second section we're going to talk about is verse 6 through to verse 12 of chapter 3, where there's a call for repentance. As the people had turned away from him, but are withholding from him, he then calls them to return to him. And that was expressed through their withholding of tithes. But the heart behind each of these responses through the words of Malachi is that the people would no longer doubt God and then withhold from God, but they would instead see God for who he really is and then return to him. So let's have a look at the verse, first section, okay? So have a look, Malachi chapter 2, verse 17 is where we're starting from. I'd encourage you to, to get it out and follow along because there's not that many verses, so we're going to move through it pretty um, methodically as we work through it. Now, verse 17 starts with this. It says, You have wearied the, Lord's, the, the Lord with your words. There's that word, weary. How have we wearied him, you ask? By saying, All who do evil are good. In the eyes of the Lord, and he is pleased with them. Or where is the God of justice? Israel was accusing, effectively accusing God of injustice because what they felt they were observing was that those who were doing evil were flourishing rather than being punished. It was as though God was somehow pleased with them and not pleased with his own people. In some ways, it's a rebadged version of the accusation we had all the way back in Malachi chapter 1, where they said, How have you loved us, God? Our enemies are prospering, and we are not. If you loved us, you would crush our enemies, and you would bless us, for we are your people after all. There's a clear mismatch between the expectations of the people coming out of exile and what they were experiencing at this point in their lives. I wonder if you've ever experienced a disconnect between what your expectations of a walk with Jesus was going to be like and the reality of what that walk with Jesus is actually like. Perhaps at times you hope that your walk with Jesus would bring about an easier, more peaceful existence, would fix certain problems, even bring a level of prosperity or to cause things to go your way when they may not have been. But then the reality of that walk sets in, doesn't it? And we realise that it is still a hard and challenging road because we still live in a fallen and difficult world. So it leaves us with this mismatch 
God, where is your justice? You said you would never leave me nor forsake me. You said you were sovereign and in control. Or just like Israel, you said you love me. We've each been in that place at times where we have questioned these aspects of God. Israel was certainly in that place right now. So let's look at how God responds to him, to the people, through the prophet Malachi in chapter 3, verse 1 to 5. It says this in verse 1, God says, I will send a messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. God starts by promising a messenger that would come who would prepare the way before him. This begs the question, well, who is the messenger? One interpretation might be that the messenger was this uh, angelic person or uh, who would be like a divine forerunner to the final judgment of God. But the more favoured interpretation is that this prophecy is actually pointing to John the Baptist. And the strength of that is by the fact that this verse in Malachi is quoted in Matthew, Mark and Luke and in each time it's a reference to John the Baptist. He was the forerunner who would prepare the way for Jesus and to prepare the work and prepare the hearts for repentance amongst his people. Significant when you think about the theme of repentance that will come out quite strongly later on. And the language of preparing the way is like removing the obstacles ahead of the procession of a coming king, the King Lord Jesus Christ. And we see that idea of a procession in verse 1, where it says, The Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger was to prepare the way for the coming king to come and return to his temple. And there's been a lot of focus on this temple in the book of Malachi. You know, in chapter 1, God said he was going to prefer to shut the doors of the temple rather than have this half-hearted worship continuing. In chapter 2, God spoke about the desecration of his sanctuary by the intermarrying amongst his people as it brought in the worship of foreign gods. And now in chapter 3, God is warning that there's a time when the Lord you are seeking is going to return to this temple. He's going to re-establish true worship. He's going to re-establish his reign, his rule, and his presence. And he'll put in place a real priesthood led by the great high priest in Jesus Christ. And at that time, you will see true justice. Then verse 2 to 4, Malachi begins to describe what that coming justice will look like. And first he makes it clear that, well, no one's going to be able to withstand the justice. It says, who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? No one is immune from this judgment and no one will be able to stand against it but for the grace of God. And then he describes the effect of the coming judgment in that he says it will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. Now, a refiner's fire points to the purifying work of God's wrath and judgment. That final judgment is intended to purge his people from their impurities. And so Malachi goes on in verse 3 to 4 to speak of the, the purification of the Levites and the priesthood so that their offerings would be acceptable to him once again. God's people would be made acceptable before a holy God in that time. 
But it's not just referred to as a refiner's fire, it's also referred to as a launderer's soap. Now, soap's not usually the object I would think about when I look ahead to the coming judgment of God. But we can see the power in that analogy from other Old Testament verses. In Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 22, it says this, speaking to the nation of Israel again, Although you wash yourself with soap and an abundance of cleansing powder, the stain of your guilt is before me. Nothing we can do can cleanse us from the guilt of our sin. But when God's time of judgment comes, the stain of our guilt will be washed away once and for all by the blood of the Lamb, Jesus Christ. So it purifies us from sin and it washes away the stain of our guilt and shame. And only then will God's people be acceptable to him, it says in verse 4, as in days gone by. So having been given this picture of God's coming judgment, you can still imagine the people returning to their original question. How will that day bring justice? what it says in verse 5 God says well when I come I will put you on trial notice it says I'll put you on trial God's people are going to be put on trial as much as everyone else they don't seem to be realizing that in asking for justice from God they are fact inviting their own judgment inviting themselves to be put on trial as much as anyone else and when you consider the criticism God has had for their priesthood and their offerings and their worship and their marriages and very soon their tithes, the prospect of that trial would seem exceptionally uncomfortable. In the same way, the prospect of our own trial would feel and feels exceptionally uncomfortable. For if our worship and our faithfulness and our giving and our lives were put on trial before a perfect and holy God, how could any of us stand before him? For we are all just as deserving of his judgment as any other people, nation, tribe or tongue. We're no better than anyone else. But look at what God says in verse 5. He says, I will be quick to testify against sorcerers and adulterers and perjurers, against those who defraud people of their wages, who oppress the widows and the fatherless, and deprive the foreigners among you of justice. But do not fear me, says the Lord Almighty. In other words, I will deliver true justice on that day. The list given in these verses is not an exhaustive list, it's an illustrative list of the fact that God will make wrongs right on that day. God will stand against the oppressors and the evildoers, and he will stand for the oppressed. And the justice that people were seeking will come. And as it says in Hebrews 10.31, it's a dreadful day to fall in the hands of the living God. It's a dreadful thing for that to happen. But yet he tells his people not to fear. Why? They are deserving of judgment as much as anyone else. They have doubted God's love. They have been unfaithful to him. They have turned to other gods. So what's the difference? Well, the difference is 
They are God's chosen people. They're the beneficiaries of his covenant love. And as God says right back in Malachi 1, 2, 1 verse 2, I have loved you. There are and they are and will always be his covenant people surrounded by his covenant love. The day of our salvation is not about anything we have done. It's about what God has covenanted to do. The covenant that was fulfilled by the blood of the Lamb in Jesus Christ who gave his life on the cross so that when the time of God's final judgment arrives, God's people will be upheld. Those who believe in the work in Jesus Christ will stand refined of their sin and washed of their guilt. They do not need to fear the day of God's true justice. Even though we fail and we sin and we fall short of his standards, even though we too will be put on trial, we stand refined and washed because of Jesus bearing judgment on our behalf because he loved us. But for those who stand outside of that covenant love, who have turned their back on Christ and the work that he achieved on the cross, who could possibly stand in the face of the testimony that is before them and endure on the day God's justice is finally delivered? It's a sobering thought. There's a truth here that when Jesus returns, he will judge all sin and injustice, but he will uphold his people. How might God be calling us to stop questioning God's justice, but to instead trust him and allow it to cause us to wait all the more eagerly to the day of his return? To let our hurt and our hardships and our difficulties cause us to fix our eyes all the more firmly on that day when God will make all things right, the day when he will come to his temple. Perhaps it might be time for us to, to guard against our circumstances, to guard against the circumstances that we observe in those around us and instead consider the state of our own hearts before him so that God might do a work in the temple of our own hearts, change us from the inside out in readiness for that incredible day of his return to his temple. Now, Having just observed how Israel was wearying God with their words, the focus then switches in verse 6 to 12 with how they were wearying him with their actions. Look at what it says in verse 6. It says, I, the Lord, do not change. We talked about change already, and there were some of the great reminders, isn't it, how we need to change, but God does not change. But he says, you, the descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. Ever since the time of your ancestors, you have turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. Return to me and I'll return to you, says the Lord Almighty. It's interesting to see from this verse that despite all the complaining about injustice, the only reason Israel had not been destroyed was because the Lord does not change. 
They have turned away from the requirements of his law. They have turned away from him in terms of the requirements of their offerings and worship. And as we'll hear about their tithes, they had turned away from God himself. The only reason God had not wiped them out entirely was because they were still surrounded by the love, the covenant love that he had for them as a people. They had changed, but the Lord does not. His covenant remains. And he had been faithful to that covenant. So the critical call which, the, um, which underwrites this whole section is that the people would now return to him. The word return signifies a repentance that was required in the heart of the people. A turning around, a change of direction, a returning to God. And the following verses then zoom in on tithing, but the issue of tithing was simply an outworking of a deeper heart issue that was going on within the people of God. They had gone astray and God was calling them in their hearts to repent and to return to him as their God. So let's look at how God talks about the need for his people to return to him. It says at the end of verse 7 through to verse 9, this is what it says, but you ask, well, how are we to return? Will a mere mortal rob God? Yet you rob me. You ask, how are we robbing you? In tithes and offerings. You are under a curse. Your whole nation, because you are robbing me. In those two verses, the idea of robbing God is mentioned four times to emphasize the seriousness and the gravity of what was going on. The people of Israel were either failing to give their whole tithe or failing to give any tithe or potentially off making additional offerings instead of giving their tithes. So the obvious question is, well, why was this failure to give or a withholding in their giving a robbing of God? Now, if you go back to Leviticus, I think it sheds a bit of light on it. In Leviticus 27 verse 30, it says, A tithe of everything from the land, whether grain from the soil or fruit from the trees, belongs to the Lord. It is holy to the Lord. So when viewed through the lens of the covenant and the Mosaic law, these ties belong to God himself. And so the language used in Malachi 3 reflects this by declaring that the withholding of this was therefore reclaiming for their own that which belonged to God. I wonder how we might be guilty of robbing God sometimes, claiming that for our own, which actually belongs to God. We hold back our time. We safeguard it for ourselves. We hold back our gifts at times, trying to manage our, our commitment levels. And yes, we hold back our, our finances and our savings to ensure we remain in a secure and comfortable position. Rather than viewing those things as the property of God and laying them down at his feet. The people of Israel were no different. But what's interesting to reflect on is to consider the root of the problem that led them to this point. They doubted the justice and the fairness and the goodness of God. They ultimately doubted the love that God had for them as a nation and their sacrifices suffered for it. And their marriages suffered for it. And now their giving suffered for it as well. When their hearts 
turned away from God, when our hearts turn away from God, so does our worship in all different areas of our life. You see, guilt will never lend itself to generosity in our giving back to God. Obligation will never lend itself to generosity in our giving back to God. Even good habits in and of themselves will never lend themselves to generosity in our giving back to God. But when we take to heart and we place our faith in the unconditional covenant love of God for his people, that is what lends itself to true generosity in our giving back to God, as it simply becomes an extension of our worship of him. We hold nothing back because we look to the cross and see that Jesus held nothing back from us. But with that resonating in our minds and our hearts, what does God call his people to do? Well, let's keep reading. It says, Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord. In other words, don't bring part of your tithe, don't withhold your tithe. Bring the whole tithe to the storehouse, or the, or the temple treasuries as they were kept, that they might be full again in ready anticipation for this, for this coming return of the Lord to his temple. But the language in verse 10 is really interesting. He says, test me in this. And see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there'll be not enough room to store it. See the words at the start there? Test me in this. So should we test God with our tithes? Deuteronomy 6.16 says, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Uh, Jesus himself quoted that verse when he was in the wilderness and he was confronted by Satan, he was tempted quoted the same verse. The reference to testing here, therefore, in Malachi seems to be more of an invitation from God to his people to, um, that they might, inviting them to prove his covenant faithfulness in this area. God invites them to bring the whole tithe so that he might have the opportunity to show his covenant faithfulness to them, to bless them and protect them. Blessing in the way he describes the floodgates of heaven being open. In other words, an abundance of rain and therefore abundance of produce. And then protection, that he would protect it from pests and things that would destroy that produce. And these descriptions of blessing and protection actually point back to the original language of the blessings and curses that were referred to in Deuteronomy 28. It's old covenant language. He's drawing them back to the Mosaic Covenant and reminding them that God doesn't change and his law therefore doesn't change and because God and his law doesn't change, neither does my covenant with you. I have loved you. And as it says in verse 12, then all the nations will call you blessed for yours will be a delightful land, says the Lord Almighty. Now the question, how, how do we apply this old covenant language in light of the cross. And I think the first thing to remember here is that this was a corporate call for repentance as a nation and a people, rather than being individually centered. So the lesson here is not, 
when an individual gives, that person can therefore expect individual material returns from God. That's not the point. The focus is more on God's desire to see a heart of repentance from his people, that they would return to him and follow his ways once again, that they would be faithful to him so that their hearts would then overflow with worship of him. And I think the other point to remember here is that in Christ we participate in an entirely new covenant, a better covenant as we know from the book of Hebrews. And under this new and better covenant, we do not give in order to receive back from God. We give because of what we have already received from God. And it's a big difference when you think about it. We don't give in order to receive from God. We give because of what we have already received in God. In Christ, we have already received the gift of our salvation through the grace of God. In Christ, we now stand redeemed and justified and clothed in his righteousness. In Christ, we have the forgiveness of our sins. We have been refined and made pure again. We've been washed by the blood of the Lamb. In Christ, we now have the Holy Spirit to guide and direct us. In Christ, we are now adopted as sons and daughters of the living God. In Christ, we now have an eternal inheritance that will never perish, spoil or fade. In Christ, we already stand here blessed with every spiritual blessing that could be offered to an unworthy and sinful people. And so when we take the reality of what we have already received to heart and we consider how God withheld nothing from us, even his one and only son, so that we might stand here incredibly blessed with all of these gifts of grace, How can we in turn withhold from him? How can we hold back? Now, what does this look like, right? Is it 10%? Is it less? Is it more? It's not about that, is it? 2 Corinthians 9, 7 says, Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give. And I love that verse because it points beautifully to Malachi in the way it recognises that all of this starts with the heart. It's all about returning to God with our hearts. It's why this passage in Malachi doesn't start with the blessings. It starts with a call to return to him. To return to him once again. Don't rob God any longer. Let him take hold of our hearts and change us from the inside out so that we grab hold of the reality of the blessings that are already ours in Christ and surrender all that we are and all that we have to him in return. There's a truth here that God extends his grace and blessing to those who return to him. So I wonder how you might need to return to him to draw deeper into his word again, to draw deeper into his promises, 
to return to his way and direction for your life if you may have strayed off that course in one way or another so that he can re rebuild in us a heart of worship and generosity as a people once again. Now, there are doubts or complaints in your heart about God that might be causing you to start withholding from him, holding back or turning from him, rather than trusting in who he is and being willing to lay all that we are and all that we have at the foot of the cross. It's not just about finances. It's far deeper than that. It's a heart's desire to return to God so that we surrender all to him as we look to the cross and we see and, evolve, and, and follow the example of God the Son who willingly surrendered all that he had in obedience to his Father. Israel wearied God with their words and their actions as they doubted God's justice and as a result they turned from him and withheld from him that which was rightfully his. We, on the other hand, have the opportunity to not weary God but to worship God through our words and our actions as we wait for the day of his covenant love to be fulfilled. And in the meantime, we return to him with all of our hearts, holding nothing back, but surrendering everything to the foot of the cross. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we, we are humbled by your covenant love for us, the fact that we are continually unfaithful to you and that you do not change. You remain faithful to us yesterday, today, and forever. Lord, we thank you that your day of your um, final judgment is coming, but yet we do not need to fear because of that covenant love that we have through our faith in Jesus Christ. Lord, may we look to that day with eager anticipation and return to you with all of our hearts, holding nothing back, Lord, but offering everything that we have to you in worship and adoration of the way you offered everything for us. Lord, we pray this in your name. Amen.